is one of these. Okay. Um, it's always interesting whenever whenever our um, sequences get changed. Have you noticed that? Uh, not meeting last Sunday kind of threw my whole week off. I was still trying to figure out what day it was. And, um, you know, it was usually a day ahead. Something was just not quite right about it. But um, it's nice to be back here, but then we messed it up again and canceled first session, and now we've got second session, and so now um, th- this is one one session. So I was I left it with the birth of the Messiah, and uh, that was two weeks ago. That's hard to even say, but uh, it was two weeks ago, and it wasn't done. So I was faced with a dilemma. In other words, do I go ahead and try to finish the birth of the Messiah? and do communion, and I looked at the number of pages left, and you can look at the number of pages left, and you'll go, that wouldn't have been a good move. And so I opted to wait till next Sunday to finish that, so I'll have a full hour to to uh, do that. But we're going to finish up the birth of, of the Messiah. So obviously when we start looking at the new year, and, uh, you know, 2023, I... I when I was in junior high and high school, I thought, that'll never come. Year 2000 will never come. And then I thought I had the rapture dated in 1981, and, and I was shocked that 2000 did come. And so here we are, 23 years on the other side of that. And so what, what do we learn from things? And that's, uh, that's kind of what uh, New Year's is kind of designed to do. Take a look back and also look forward. And... There's, there's no better way to do that than to look at the Lord's table and partake of it, to have that share in that ritual because that looks back and it also looks forward. That's what the Lord's table is designed to do. It's to get us to look back at the cross and look forward to his return, those two things put together. And what, what, what about the past? Uh, <clears throat> 2022 has been an interesting year for a lot of us. Uh, just to say the least. I mean, we've lost friends and family. We've gained new friends and family. We had different things that, that have happened throughout the world, around the world, different changes that are being made, some good, some bad, most of them bad. But what are we going to learn from what are we going to learn from the past? And then what are we going what are we going to do about it? And so the Lord's table is designed to take us back and get us to think through some things. When we looked at the birth of the Messiah, we saw that the prophecy of Messiah was all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the promised seed of the woman. And that's Genesis 3.15. There is going to be an unusual birth that is going to come about. So part of our remembrance of what he did was, was who he is. He was prophesied, Genesis 3, born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. Isaiah 9, 6, the government will rest on his shoulders. He shall be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And the prophecies were about God becoming man. They were never about man becoming God. They were about God becoming man. I think the world religions are just insidious counterfeits of that because they teach, all except atheism, they teach that man can become a God. That's backwards. You know it's backwards. It's right out of the mouth of Satan. So how did, what, what happened? What, what do we do? Well, God became man 
and dwelt among us. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. We look at other prophecies, Isaiah 53 being one of those, which uh, gives us an amazing picture of the man of sorrows, as Jesus is called, because he underwent so many different things on our behalf. We're told in Philippians 2 to have this attitude in ourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. Now to do that, we have to know about him. Who, although he existed as God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to at all costs, but he emptied himself. And he took on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see that Messiah was going to be and is humble, he's sacrificial, and he, he is not self-centered at all. So we find... <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ himself that we see prophesied throughout the history of man 4,000 years up until he was born. Now, <clears throat> the Lord's table says, take a look at that. There was a promise given to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and in that promise given to Abraham, it was prophesied that in this child, the son of Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And that's those that bless you, Abraham, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. That's the way it is going to be. And so through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and you get all the way down to David and Solomon, you find an amazing list of the line of the Messiah. And you look back and say, that, could have had, that line could have been broken. Could it not? Were it not for God's hand? Because what if one of those in the line or all of those in the line of a certain family didn't have a male child? Then the line's broken. But God kept them and he preserved them and he brought them all together so that uh, Mary and Joseph would have the lineage back from Abraham. So we look back at, at what happened. After Abraham came this guy named Moses. 430 years after the promise to Abraham, they walked out of Egypt according to the scriptures. They walked out of Egypt. They went into the promised land. And what can we learn from the promised land? What can we learn from the Jews? Well, Hebrews 10 tells us that it is an amazing, uh, that they were shadows. They were pictures they were of the reality that is to come. That there would be a Messiah. And this Messiah we would call Eternal Father and Prince of Peace. And so <clears throat> we look back into the past and we see that everything pointed toward the Lord. Now what, is, what else happened in, in, under Moses? Then we have, the, we have the Levitical offering system. Levitical offerings, they couldn't save. The scripture said it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what were they? They were a picture of the Messiah who could save and would save. And so that's what they were. So you look at the burn offering, the picture of the satisfaction of the righteousness and justice of the Father. You look at the gift offering, it'd be done by the perfect gift. You look at the peace offering, it would accomplish a reconciliation between God and man. You look at the sin offering and the trespass offering, both mandatory offerings, and guess what you find? Guess what you find with 
with those. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They all teach the same thing from different directions. Now I think when uh, those were all over and done with and the priesthood changed, I think the Lord changed that and replaced it with the thing we know as water baptism. Because that's to be done once, not over and over again. It's a picture of the fact that the Lord died for our, our sins once on the cross. And so water baptism should be done one time because it portrays what he did. But then there's the Lord's table. And where did that come from? Just look at the feast. We're not supposed to celebrate the feast anymore. Colossians 2 tells us that. That these are part of the the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, under the law. But the spring feast (coughs) taught that Messiah... We see the Passover, we see the... The lamb, we see the lamb slain, unleavened bread, that he would be the perfect gift to mankind. Feast of first fruits. And guess who Jesus is? The first fruit from the dead. So the spring feast points to the first advent. The day of Pentecost itself, the second time all the Jews were to gather in Jerusalem, that commemorated the giving of the law to Moses. And we're told in Hebrews where there is a change of priesthood of necessity, there's a change of law. And so we look at the day of Pentecost and we go, oh yeah, the first advent happened. And with that came the day of Pentecost. There's a new priesthood now. There's a new priesthood. And instead of having to go to a Levitical priest to offer up your sacrifices, all those who are believers in Christ are already priests. And you don't have to bring animals. What you do is bring yourself. Present your body, a living and holy sacrifice. The sacrificial system has changed. And that's where we are in the scope of time is laid out by the Lord. But one day he's going to come back. Because in the fall feast, where the feast of trumpets, the trumpet is going to sound, the dead in Christ shall be raised first. There's a feast of trumpets. There's a day of atonement. There is also, that's the ultimate atonement when we're all home free. And then there's the Feast of Tabernacles. I try to say Feast of Booths, but my Oklahoma accent comes out Feast of Booze. And that can be mistaken. But it is a, that's why I call it Feast of Tabernacles, (laughs) to make it easier. It's a picture of the Millennial Kingdom. So the Spring Feast for First Advent, Fall Feast for Second Advent. Now what does the Lord's Table talk about? Look back and remember what he did on the cross. That he died, was buried, and rose again. And then, look forward. Keep on doing these things till he comes again. So we learn from the past. And Hebrews 3 and 4 says, Learn from all the mistakes of our elders. A lot of us have gone through our own mistakes and gained a wisdom, hopefully, from those mistakes. The wisest person is not the one that gains from their own mistakes, but who, who, who grows from looking at the mistakes of others and saying, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. That's where the wisest person really is. We shouldn't have to go through it in order to learn it. But the Lord's table, uh, I believe, took the place of all the feasts. 
And we keep on doing this on a regular, consistent basis. There's no legalistic time frame. That's why we actually move it around during the, during the month at different times of the year to go with different occasions and things like that. Because uh, some people, well, if you don't do it every Sunday, it's wrong. If you don't do it the first, first Sunday of the month, it's wrong. And we can add legalisms to that up one side, down the other. It says, keep on doing this in remembrance of me. Very simple. Very simple. So that's what we're doing. Now, what are the qualifications for partaking in this ritual? It is a ritual. It's not going to save you. It can't save you. It lacks the power. What are the qualifications to partake in this ritual? And it, namely, that you be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it starts. And many of you have heard for a long time, it's the only logical thing to do, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Something or someone always has been. It's reasonable to say someone has been because I can look at the design in nature. I can look at the design in the heavenlies and I can see a designer from it. That designer should be very clear to anyone who takes an honest look at what he has made. Because those things didn't just make themselves and arrange themselves in order. That's foolishness, really, to think that, think that it is that way. So someone or something. So if you just say, well, someone is reasonable, then uh, what does he want me to do? Well, God put inside every person two things that you can't escape no matter who you are, where you are, what culture you are, what time frame. That there's something beyond this life. Ecclesiastes 3.11 God said eternity in the hearts of men. Every world religion except atheism accepts that. And you're a sinner. Oh, isn't that exciting? How do we know that? We know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Yeah? That, that's what the Bible says. But every... And even atheists, to a degree, realizes they're, they won't call them sin, but they'll call them mistakes. Okay? Well, if it's a mistake, of the, if it's an abrogation of the moral code, it's a sin, like it or not. Romans 1 says nature even teaches us about certain types of sins. So it's pretty well obvious that there's certain things that people shouldn't be involved in. But everybody, every human being, faces the fact that they are sinners facing eternity. There's only two possible solutions. Life's really simple when it boils down to it. You either have to find a way to save yourself, which is all the world religions except Christianity, or you have to find a Savior. Now, if I want to find a Savior, who am I going to look for? What qualifications would I draw out here? What I would look and see is that the Savior needs to be able to have conquered sin, had a perfect life, and death. There's only one in the history of the world that has met those qualifications. Jesus Christ knew no sin. No sin was found in him. And yet he died on a cross, tested too by multiple people, multiple cultures, multiple worldviews, he died. But then also, on the third day, he rose again. 
And he said, Whosoever believes in me will not perish, but shall have eternal life. Those who believe in me will never die. Never die spiritually ever again. We're born spiritually dead. All of us are. But when we believe, we become spiritually alive, and that life is forever. And that's based not on man's promise. Man's theology is based on the Word of God. Because he's the one that said that. So the first requirement to participate in the Lord's table is to be a believer. How, how easy is it? It's easy. Of course, with the worldviews competing, it's not necessarily easy. But you just let the Father know that you have accepted the work of His Son on a cross in your place, and you are trusting Him for your eternal life. And that's the moment of your salvation. That's your new birth. That's the new creation that is in you. That's what it means to be born again. You let him know. Your own words, there's no rituals, no formulas, nothing like that. You let him know in your own words and you're a child of God. In that moment in time, you've received at least 50 things that we've been able to identify. Now, that's a pretty neat deal, isn't it? Do you have to work for it? No. Because he did all the work. That's what we are called to do. Now, we are saved by grace through faith. That not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, salvation. It is not of works, lest any should boast. But we are his workmanship. And we are created for good works. The works come after we're saved. Because that way they're done to, can be done to his glory. They don't get us saved. They don't keep us saved. They don't prove we're saved. Because the works of Christians can all be counterfeited by unbelievers. And indeed they do. So the test is, are we growing? Do we have sin in our life that's ruling over us? Things that we, that we shouldn't be doing, we know we shouldn't be doing. <clears throat> to partake of the Lord's table, be a believer and be in fellowship. Don't partake in an unworthy manner. Paul warns in 1 Corinthians 11. Because of this, a number of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. So it is a ritual. It won't save you, but it is not to be played with. So <clears throat> let us take just a, just a minute for prayer. If you've not accepted Christ as your Savior, no better time than today. It'd be an easy day to remember the day you're born again, January 1st of 23. And if you're a <clears throat> believer and you need to confess some sins or make some adjustments, you can't make them sitting right here, but you can decide that you're going to. Confess your sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's take this time for prayer, present ourselves to the throne of grace, and, and just get ready to partake of the Lord's table. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father you are so amazing in the plan that you have laid out the son that you sent your beloved son and the Holy Spirit that reveals him to us and Father we cannot thank you enough for you and three people Father, we thank thank you for this 
opportunity to come together and to be able to fellowship with one another. But more than that, to be able to look back and thank you and our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit for revealing to us your amazing plan. This plan of salvation by which we are redeemed and by which we can count on and indeed stand on the promises. There are so many reasons to bless you. And Father, I pray we'll never stop recognizing those and blessing you for them. So Father, today as we partake, I pray this will not be done ritualistically, but Father, instead that it will be to honor you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you go ahead and pull the uh, thing apart here. There are two elements to the Lord's table. The first one is the bread. Now, the bread is a picture of the Lord's perfect person. Had he not been born of a virgin, he'd have been just like the rest of us. Because in Adam, all have died. Adam's original sin in Romans 5 is imputed to every member of the human race. So that needed to be bypassed. And how is it done? By means of a virgin. With the Holy Spirit being the Father. Her own sin nature had to have been cleansed by the Holy Spirit at the moment of impregnation. That's what had to have happened. Because the result was a perfect child. Now it's hard to imagine a child staying perfect for very long, right? We've, we've had children, we've been children. And I know when that little child first is born, they are perfect. Everything is wonderful about them. And it doesn't take long to find out, no, there's some flaws that are there. He was born perfectly. But what to me is so much more amazing is he stayed that way. He stayed that way growing up, learning the word, Luke 2.40. He grew in knowledge and wisdom. He confounded the, the wise men at the tabernacle when he was 12 years old. That's indeed who he was. And the Lord stayed perfect. At the age of 30, around that, his, his ministry began. And it didn't take long for people to get really upset with him. He was a man of sorrows. He felt compassion. He felt all the emotions that you and I do, and yet without sin. Can you imagine that? Yet without sin. When he was mad, it was righteous. We get it righteous every now and then. But usually most of our anger is not of the righteous kind. But he did it perfectly every time. To stop and even think about a person going for 33 to 35, 6 years, going perfectly, that's hard for us to wrap our head around. That's who he was. Because he was the lamb unblemished. That's who he had to be. Had he sinned like Adam, he'd have been just like Adam and would have lost his, would not have been qualified to be the Messiah. But he made it. He made it. <clears throat> he did not respond in return. He did not revile in return. Instead, like a lamb led to the slaughter, that's who he was. Now, this bread is unleavened bread. Because in Scripture, leaven denotes evil. And it's telling us to remember the perfect gift that was required. The Lord Jesus Christ, born perfectly, living perfectly throughout the entirety of his humanity. So as we partake of the bread, it's, it's 
a time to remember the life of Jesus. A lot of times we look back and think about some of the miracles that he did. Feeding the 5,000. One of the miracles recorded in all four of the Gospels. Beautiful to stop and look at that. We find him debating, if you will, with the Pharisees and the scribes. We find them calling him every kind of name imaginable. And yet him speaking the truth in love all the way. Even when he chewed him out the week before the cross. Even when he chewed him out. A perfect life represented by this. It is also a reminder that we are called to be holy as he is holy. So that we don't need to continue on in the sin that so easily entangles us. Kelvin quoted Hebrews 12. <clears throat> laying aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance this race set in front of us. Don't grow weary and lose heart in the process. And that's what this is about. It's a reminder to us to, <clears throat> to look at our life, look back at the past. We can't do anything about it. We've been forgiven. We have been forgiven. But something can be done about the future. It can be. So that's what this is about. George, would you bless the bread for us? And then we will all partake together. Took <clears throat> the bread. He broke it. So this is my body that is broken for you. So keep on doing this in remembrance of me. Let us eat. <clears throat> The cup, it's kind of interesting, a lot of people call it the, the, the wine, and yeah, that night it was the wine, whenever they partook at the Passover meal, that was indeed wine, but Jesus talks about the fruit of the vine when he talks about the Lord's table, and so this is grape juice, this is grape juice. And that's what it, I think it's designed to be. But I'm not going to get legalistic over it. I've done the Lord's table with, with a shot of wine in there. Okay? <clears throat> because the important thing about is what does it mean? Jesus didn't talk about the contents of the cup. He talked about the cup. I have a cup to drink that only I can drink. The disciples said, well, we'll drink the cup too. He says, you can't do it. You're not able, you're not qualified, you wouldn't stand up to it. This is a cup, like David spoke, my cup runneth over. This is the cup that God fills. Well, how did he fill it? With his work on a cross. Because that's what this cup is about. Jesus had a job to do that none of the disciples could have done. Peter died on a cross. Several of them died on a cross, but they didn't accomplish the work that he came to do, they were not qualified. Now this cup is about his work on the cross. You think about what he went through. You think about the six trials that he underwent. Nobody could really find him guilty. They had trouble getting two witnesses to agree to anything that he had supposedly done that would have been worthy of death. But they kept after Pilate and finally, Pilate washed his hands of the whole situation. He asked them, Hey, I usually give you a prisoner this time of year. 
How about Barabbas? Uh, here's Barabbas and Jesus. Which one do you want? They say, give us Barabbas. Well, what should I do with him? See, Pilate going through there was, in a way, fighting for the life of the Lord. Because he knew it just wasn't right. And they say, crucify him. Those were people that just six days earlier had yet blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were, they were hailing him as the coming Messiah. You see how fast they turned? Because he wasn't doing what they wanted him to do, which was throw the Romans out. And so they turned on him. And still no sin on his part. And that is absolutely amazing. But on the cross, <clears throat> he uttered eight things on the cross. <clears throat> and every one of those was about relationship. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. He wanted a relationship for believers to be maintained. He looked at John and said, Behold your mother. He looked at his mother and said, Behold your son. And pointed to John because he took care of mom. Right? He was the oldest. It was his responsibility what did he do? Provide for her relationship. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, his relationship had to be broken so that ours may never be broken. I thirst. He had one more thing to say. One more thing to utter. And so that was about, yeah, you got to look out for yourself from time to time too. And then he said, it is finished. Telestai. One word in the Greek. Powerful word. And I wonder if the gates of hell heard the word. It is finished. What do you mean? The debt for your sins and mine and everyone who ever lived was paid in full. That's what it meant. Then he died. That's what this symbolizes, this little cup. It can't possibly equal what he did on the cross. But it is symbolic of his work on the cross in our place. And I would ask, Bob, would you, would you bless us and bless the cup for us, sir? It says he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes back again. Let us drink. Father, we cannot thank you enough for this amazing plan. And actually the simplicity of it. We know the devil wants, it to make it, wants to make it too complex for people to understand. But your word has is, is got it simply laid out and simply put. He who believes has eternal life. He who doesn't believe faces the judgment. And Father, I just pray that each and every one of us as we go forward from here this day that we will have a, a newfound look on what is coming up this year. And a newfound idea about how what we can do in service to you. We pray that you'll guide us with wisdom. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.
and they sang a hymn. I uh, used to do challenges every year. It just kind of depends on the situation and what all's going on and what type of challenge do we have uh, that fit this year. And everything just seemed to fit together uh, because we learn from the past and live for the future. If you want to open your Bibles to Philippians 3, verse 8, go ahead and do that because where does this idea come from of putting the past behind us and living for the future? From Philippians 3, starting in verse 8, and Paul writes, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish that I might gain Christ. Now he just given us a historical family background of who he was earlier in this chapter, and he said, so what about I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees, the tribe of Benjamin, da-da-da. And I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, i.e. like the Pharisees did, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. The moment you believe in Christ, you're imputed with righteousness. That's what gets us into heaven. It's not our works. It's his righteousness that we have been given. And then he says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That I may know him. And you just stop and pause for a second and you go, you think about Philippians. It was near the end of um, what Paul, uh, Paul's writings, uh, the prison epistles as they are called. And you think about the fact Paul had been a believer and apostle for 30 years roughly, not quite 30 years at this point in time. And he had he'd gone places, he'd set up churches, he'd done all this. He was probably the, one of the greatest theologians who ever lived in history at this point in time because he was educated under Gamaliel Gamaliel was the finest teacher that they had in Israel he knew the Mosaic law he knew the Old Testament he knew about that but he says that I may know him and that takes us to a different level because the word is knowing about him the written word but knowing him is experiential it's a different thing that happens when we do what his written word tells us to do. Then we come to know him. Because what did he say? That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Now in 2 Corinthians, it happened six years before this, he gives us a list of all the things that he had underwent uh, in, in life the various beating scourgings, shipwrecks, everything you can imagine, danger from his countrymen, danger from robbers, danger. And he had gone through that. So he knew the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, being conformed to his death. Passages say we had the spirit of death within us. We thought is we're ready to die. They faced circumstances and they thought, it's all going to be over. We're going to go be with the Lord. Philippians 1 even writes about it. They threatened me with death. I guess bring it on. He wasn't afraid of death. Why? Because he, he knew he was going to be with the Lord. So there's no fear of death. What can man do to me? And Paul had that. 
And he says, order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We're not going to go into all that today. He's talking about inheritance. Here, attain to the resurrection from the dead. He'd already taught and wrote and preached that you believe in Jesus Christ, you are born again and you're guaranteed resurrection. 1 Thessalonians 5 is one of those passages that you can look at that does it. And he says, not that I've already obtained it, or namely, have already become perfect. That's our word for mature. Paul is saying, with all of his knowledge, with all of, experience, all of his experience, he said, I'm not yet there. Now, I used to think at one time, and some of you did too, that maturity was a point of time. We were just going to take the flag of the gospel and we were going to go up this mountain and we're going to plant the flag on the high ground. A point of time. It is not a point of time. Paul, if it was, Paul had already made it. And he said, I'm not there yet. He's saying that we can always become more and more mature. I've been thinking about this more and more. Some areas of our life, and I think all of us notice that, we're just immature is some kids some kids are more mature than we are in certain certain areas that's just that's the way it goes but other areas of our life we're good and solid and strong and yes we've got it all we've got it all downright but in some areas we're just like adolescents other we're like toddlers so what do we want to do we want to get all of those areas to where they need to be and we always have room to grow he says, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He laid hold of us the moment we put our faith in him. We are now in his hands. There's no power in heaven on earth or under the earth that can take us out of the hand of God. It does not exist. So that is a, a great comfort. But I was laid hold of that by Jesus Christ. So now I want to comply I want to do my part. I want to do these works that were laid out for me before the foundation of the world to do. That's what I want to do. And that's what Paul's saying. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. <clears throat> forgetting what lies behind. You know, Paul had some <clears throat> good stuff behind him, didn't he? As well as the bad stuff. Who was he? He was a sinner who persecuted Christians. That's who he was. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 7 is where he first shows up. And he's watching them stone Stephen. And he just is holding their coats so he won't get his hands dirty there. But he shows up. He looks back at his life and he goes, Boy, I got some bad stuff in here. And he admits to it. Honestly. But then he also looks back at his life. If you're looking back from... Being an apostle for 25 years, all the churches he planted, the model church at Thessalonica, another one at Colossae, the church at Philippi, one of the one of the probably the some of his best friends there at Philippi, and you look back at what Paul had done has done, and he says, forgetting what lies behind. That means that these sins don't need to drag us down. And it also means we don't need to rest on our laurels. We just don't need to. All of us have done some bad and some good things. But he says, 
Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. This is a Christian attitude that we should have. It's easy when a lot of us get uh, certain ages, the body doesn't work like it once did, and we're not as able to get out and do as much activity as we once did. And sometimes we think, well, I got enough gold, silver, and precious stones laid up for me in heaven. I don't need any more. I'm going to share the wealth and let somebody else get out there and get them. Actually, I don't think that's the way it's supposed to be. I think we are supposed to want to to just be found doing what we're supposed to be doing whenever the Master returns, just as George, George prayed. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are mature... Okay, so he says, I'm not as mature as I need to be, but I'm mature to a degree. Have this attitude. And if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. So he says, here you are, and if you want to look at it as going up a mountain, you're going up a mountain, and you don't want to slide back down. I think they used to call it backsliding in the church that I was, I was in. And uh, often had to do with all kinds of legalistic stuff. But that you you want to at least hang on to the same. But that shouldn't be your attitude is maintenance. We shouldn't just want a maintenance attitude in the Christian life. After watching some of these bowl games, you'll find out when a team gets ahead, often two touchdowns, you know what they want to do? Protect the lead. Maintain. What happened more than once over this bowl season? They lost it. They lost it. Now, <clears throat> learn from the past and live for the future. That's what we are called to do. And that's the passage. Now, here's the fill in the blanks. These are exciting. Fill in the blanks and guess what? It's going to be an acrostic when we get done. I like a, I got a thousand acrostics that I've done. But the first one, I, I just want to take us back. Let's think about the past and how can we learn from it. Most of us cut our teeth on Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and it is a judge of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The next verse, all creatures are open and laid bare before him with whom we have to do. There is absolutely nothing that escapes his notice. But let us look back at the past when we realized, for a lot of us a long time ago, there is power in the word of God. There is power in the word of God. Of God. Now, what else is there? Here's another verse. Should ring true, should ring a bell. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. It was interesting because when I first started started studying, I was listening to a pastor and I was listening to him quote these verses and all that, and I, I could quote the verses along with him. And it, when I got to seminary, I went, Where are these located? I knew they were in there. They had to be. He was quoting scripture, but where were they located? 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God-breathed 
That means it's unique. The word used is a unique word. especially designed to talk to us about inspiration. All scripture is God-breathed and it is profitable for doctrine. Doctrine is what we should do for correction, how we should change. For doctrine, for reproof, that's verbal correction that goes along. It says this is what's wrong. And all scripture is profitable for this, for teaching us the standard, for reproof, showing us where we are wrong, for doctrine, for proof, for correction, showing us the right way to go, not just correcting. Because it's easy to say, you're doing it wrong. But then what do you do with it? For instruction in what? Freedom? That's not the word, is it? And yet a lot of us will hang on to our freedom at the expense of righteousness. Instruction in righteousness. That the man of God might be mature. Grown up. Acting like a grown-up and thoroughly furnished for all good works. So, this is 2 Timothy 3, the Ephesians 2 passage. Saved by grace through faith. It's how we're saved, but we're saved in order to do good works. So, there's authority in the word. All scripture is God-breathed. It comes from God. That's where the authority is found. The supreme authority Many nations, our nation included, is fighting for what's written in the Constitution. They ought to be fighting more so for what's written in the Word of God. And think about that. Have we already ceded to the enemy the authority of the Word of God? Because we've been browbeat and we've been beat down and called names and called lunatics and all this other stuff. Or should we be standing up for the fact that what he says is the ultimate authority. What our Constitution says, for the most part, agrees with what he said. That's what gave it its power to begin with. When it is all twisted and turned around, don't stand for it. The test is, how does your Constitution, how do your standards line up with the ultimate standards? And the only way you find that out is through studying the Word. And guess what? The third one is, Study the word. Let's see, we have a P for power. We have an A for authority. And we have an S for study the word. 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show yourself approved unto God. The third verse that I heard for years and years and years. Study to show yourself approved unto God. The word study, interestingly enough, it's spudazo, it's a word that means to be diligent. Diligence specifically is focused on study because of the context. But the root meaning is you have a zeal for it. Diligence has three main concepts. You have a zeal, you have a speed that you want to do it, and you're making an honest effort. That's what diligence is. That's what our study is. I, I can't tell you what it's meant to me to go back through the different books of the New Testament that I've had the privilege of teaching 
over the last 40 years and to put put the notes together and to get them formatted because it takes me right back through each book line upon line I'm going through I'm seeing the important Greek important Hebrew that is in there and going through those things and what a what an amazing uh, it's just uh, encouragement to me and you go through and you look at them and you go, oh, did I goose this one up? If so, how do I change it? Or how do I word this better so it's not so obtuse in its in its uh, wording? So, <clears throat> but study the word. Study to show yourselves approved unto God as workmen that do not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. I think about being a workman because. Uh, a lot of us have been workmen, I, and I think uh, uh, Mike, because Mike and I were both painters for a long period of time, and you had to have the right tools. You had to have the right paintbrushes, rollers, sprayers, whatever you're going to use for the job. The job required the right tools to be able to do it. But more than that, <laughs> it required that you knew how to use the tools. Because we've been sent in, Jimmy and I used to paint houses together. We went into a house in Broken Arrow one time and had a stained cabinet work that was in there, the lumber core ash cabinet work from the 70s or whatever it was. They put that in all those things. And whoever painted it before we got there didn't have a clue how a roller works because they had partial strips on the side of those cabinets and all that and it was a rent house and the owner wanted us to to uh, make it look nice again well we were enough perfectionist that we had to get that off of there and try to get it off of there without going through the finish <laughs> and having to refinish the cabinets because that would have been a, a trick so with great patience we did Whoever did that beforehand was a workman who needed to be ashamed because they didn't know how to work work the tools that they had and didn't pay enough attention to do a, a job heartily as unto the Lord and not as unto men. Other painters you go through and you see little perfections. And if you, when you paint a house, as you know, I think Ron had an experience yesterday with, with paint. And I... I I kind of envy Ron's height because he's tall enough he can reach and cut in the ceiling without a ladder. I lived on a ladder for 20 years and it just, you know, because I didn't reach up and do that. But in any event, to see how they did the trim lines, how they cut in, how what they did around the baseboards that were stained with painted walls. I mean, you could tell the level of expertise of the workmen just by looking at their finished product. Now, what are we supposed to do? We need the tools. Okay? We need the tools. And part of that is that you show yourself approved unto God. You have to have the desire, the want to, the, the, the zeal to know what God's Word says. That was the thing that pulled me into the ministry a long time ago. I wanted to... I wanted to be able to go directly to the source to find out. Because uh, I, like uh, Larry and Danny Hensley, we'd sold Bible books door to door for uh, a while going through college. And boy, you can learn any and everything about any and everybody about what they believe about this and that and, and the other. 
And so what you find out is there's a great confusion. And for a period of time after I got finished with that, two, three, four years, I didn't think anybody had a clue what the Bible had to say, quite honestly. Until somebody showed, showed me that, guess what? If you go to the original languages, then you're going to get a lot more of your questions answered. And that's, that was the trigger. And so that's when I wanted to know how to do Greek, how to do Hebrew, how to do Aramaic, how to do the Bible languages. Because I wanted to study for myself. And and I worked fairly well. I enjoy going through the scriptures and looking at the original manuscripts and seeing, seeing what was actually written there. Because to me that opens up more, more than any translation can ever get. I hope to do that with these corrected translations. But I, I know they don't, they don't reach the level that, that there is in the, of the Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic as you study it in the languages. But study the word. We have people overseas and they say, well, we don't have all those tools. We don't, and so what, what do we do? I said, you're expected to do the best you can with what you have. Okay? If you have an opportunity to get this, get it. If you don't, you still study it, do the best you can with what you have. Because it's acceptable to give from what a man has, not what he doesn't have. So study the word. And the last one is trust in the word. From 1 John 2.28. 1 John 2.28 and says, And now little children abide in him. This is John the Apostle. He's about 85 AD. He's 70, 80 years old. So everybody's a little child to him. Some of us know what he's talking about. But it says, Little children, abide in him. Abide means to live your life there. We are in him. Who are you? All of us who are believers are in Christ Jesus. We are part of his body. I mean, what, a, what an amazing blessing that is. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. You know, when he comes back, we as believers, I think we're all going to have a level of shame. It's not going to be for all the sins we did. It's going to be for all the stuff we could have done. Had we been more focused. Sins have been forgiven. That's not what he's. That's not what we're standing in front of him about. But I think we'll be a little like Peter. In John 21. Whenever the Lord showed up. And on the. On the, the beach. And they were out there fishing. And you remember that. And Peter had really messed up bad. And he jumps out of the boat. Remember and swims to shore. And they're out there struggling with the fish, struggling with the net, trying to bring in this great haul of 153 fish. They're trying to, to bring all of that in. And, and, the, and the Lord starts talking to Peter because he's already got the fish ready to eat. Okay? The, the, the meal is prepared. Peter, do you love me? What a question. Do you uh, agape me? And Peter said, 
Lord, you know I phileo, I love you as a friend. He didn't answer him directly. Because agape is a spiritual love that does what's right and best even when you don't feel like it. Phileo is more of a feeling type of love. So he said, you know I love you. I have feelings for you, all that. But he knew that he was not... It was not a righteous love that he had displayed toward the Lord. And then he said, feed my little lambs. What's this? Three denials, three questions. He's restoring Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter got agitated. And he said, again, agape. You know I love you. Phileo. Avoided it. One more time. Shepherd my sheep. So what's he doing? Feed, shepherd, and feed. Peter is a shepherd. He's being restored. Did he mess up? Yes. Peter, what about the past? Forget it. Learn from it. And move on. That's what you're supposed to do. The third time, Peter, do you really love me as a friend? Phileo. And Peter said... Lord, you know all things. You know if I do or if I don't. And he said, feed my sheep. He restored Peter. Gave him a position. But how did Peter have to function from then on? Forget what lies behind us and press forward to what lies ahead. And it's the same with all of us. We look at the good and the bad and we learn from them. We're not going to forget them. We learn from the good and the bad. And then we make decisions for the future that hopefully have a whole lot more wisdom behind them. That's what we're called to do. That's the challenge for 2023. So hopefully it will stick in our heads a little bit. Let's pray. Father, it has been once again a wonderful day to be able to Spend with with a part of your family. Be able to get together, lift up praise. Father, to be able to look into your word to partake of, of the Lord's table. The ritual that was established to get us to look back at what's been done and to look forward to what's getting ready to be done. Father, I pray we'll have this type of attitude with us all the days of our life. For we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.